listening to Green State, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality, the agency responsible for restoring, maintaining, and enhancing the quality of Oregon's air, land, and water. Welcome back to Green State, a podcast hosted by the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality. I'm Lauren Wordis. And I'm Dylan Darling. And today the topic is emergency response. DEQ's emergency response program is responsible for preventing and responding to spills of oil and other hazardous materials. This is a topic a lot of Oregonians care about. As our manager Harry Estev mentioned on our last episode about communications, Oregon is a place filled with so much natural beauty, and it's DEQ's job to protect the air, land, and water. Exactly. But sometimes accidents or mistakes or even natural disasters can happen, and that means there are hazardous materials that spill into the environment. We're going to start today with an overview of DEQ's emergency response program and then go into some of the specific ways DEQ staff are working to prevent and prepare to respond to spills. The first person we talked to to learn more about DEQ's emergency response program was the program's manager, Wes Rischel. I'm Wes Risher, the Emergency Response Manager at Oregon Department of Environmental Quality. The Emergency Response Program at DEQ is structured underneath the State of Oregon's Emergency Management Program. And at the agency, we have the responsibility for oil and hazardous material response. We have a 24-hour, seven days a week response We respond to the Oregon Emergency Response System, the ORS system, as it's often just referred to. It's a coordinated reporting system where individuals can report to this single point of contact, a concern, a spill, a truck rollover. And then from that, the ORS staff within OEM then contact the the respective agency to respond to the emergency that's been reported. We do an excellent job of responding to the uh, Oregon Emergency Response System notifications. And through that process, we respond to statewide on an average year about 2,000 reported incidents. They're across the state and they're pretty much where we work, where we live, and where we travel. Yeah, well, and thanks. I just really appreciate you covering the background, what's happening now, the staff you have. Mm-hmm. Please tell us about what's next. What is the future of spill response in Oregon? The future of spill response in Oregon is one that um, Oregon needs to play catch up. We're in a position where we do not have enough program staff to really meet the needs of a an incident that would potentially become a very large needed response. We are a third of the size of the state of Washington emergency response program. And yet, you know, we have about half of the population of the state of Washington as, as a state. And we do not have the revenue source that they have from their refineries and transloading facilities in the state of Washington to build their program on. But we do have the risk of this movement of oil and other petroleum products through the state that we need to be prepared to respond to. And we need additional resources in order to make sure that we can respond as a state agency. 
Wow. So 2,000 incidents per year. That actually makes up two-thirds of the calls into that Oregon emergency response system. And for everyone listening, that probably seems like a lot because it is. It's something like five incidents per day. However, not all incidents are large oil spills or anything like that. Just so you have kind of a sense of the scope of what any incident can really look like. Here's a couple examples from over the course of one week. A boat's gearbox malfunctioned, causing one cup of oil to spill into the Columbia River. The Oregon Department of Transportation reported a truck rollover releasing diesel from a 68-gallon tank and a fuel septic that both went onto the road and ground, but no water was impacted. And a caller reported approximately 300 gallons of diesel heating fuel leaking from a compromised oil tank onto the grounds of the property. Yeah, that's a wide range. And as those examples show, incidents can really happen anywhere. But it is rare that we have a major incident. Major incidents are what most people are concerned about. What would cause a major incident? Probably something that would cause a widespread, long-term impact. There are two potential sources of oil spills that we want to talk about today. Spills from facilities that store oil and oil trains. DQ's Emergency Response Program is responsible for ensuring these companies have plans for how to clean up a spill if it happens and that they practice their spill response. And while some staff are focused on making sure those companies are prepared, others are coordinating with local, state, and federal agencies to take a broader look at where different natural and cultural resources are around the state and how we would protect those in the event of a spill, and then how we'd share and update that information during a spill. It's a lot of work, which, as Wes said, is why we could use some more resources to do it. But in the meantime, some exceptional DEQ staff are holding down the fort, and that's who we're talking to next. First, you're going to hear from Scott Smith, whose job it is to make sure that any large ships or facilities that transport oil over state waters have a plan for how they clean up a spill. So I'm Scott Smith, and I'm one of DEQ's emergency response planners. The main portion of my job is regulating companies that have oil spill contingency plans, and those are all commercial ships over 300 gross tons, all of the petroleum pipelines that run petroleum from one facility to another, and then all tank farm type of places that have a dock and transfer oil over waters of the state. So we do a couple different types of oil spill drills. The first type are deployment drills, and that's where people actually get out there and operate equipment in the field. They place boom and they operate skimmers and practice physically getting on the water and preparing to handle potential oil spill. And so that happens two times per year per facility. And then there's also a tabletop exercise, and that's where we sort of practice the command and control. And every facility does one of those a year, and they sort of graduate. So the first year they'll do kind of a small, easy scenario Uh, because that's kind of the most likely thing that they'd have to do. And then they step it up the next year and they do a medium-sized scenario. And then the third year, they do what's called a worst-case drill. And DEQ gets really involved in those worst-case drills. We try to exercise all the various complex elements of a spill that might occur. And we'll use that information to identify any lessons learned, identify partners that need to be brought in, for instance, local or tribal representatives that could help us out to identify resources at risk or how a, a spill might affect a particular area. And then that that information is incorporated back into their oil spill contingency plan to hopefully an improvement on the way that they operate. 
So now we're going to talk about a program that's new, but somewhat related, and that's high hazard rail. There are new regulations that went into effect January 1st, 2020, and the purpose is to have railroads that transport oil near major water bodies develop spill response plans, just like the facilities that Scott was just talking about. Back to our conversation with DEQ Emergency Response Staff to talk about high hazard rail. My name is Brandon Bertelson. I am one of two high hazard rail planners with Oregon DEQ. So high hazard rail, despite the name, is actually very specific to to oil um, being transported by trains. And we have two high hazard rails uh, trains in in the state of Oregon right now, uh, the Burlington Northern and the Union Pacific Railroads. And it really comes down to how you define what a high hazard rail is. And the high hazard rail is defined here in Oregon as any train that moves oil through Oregon and it contains 20 or more tank cars in a single block, or if it has 35 or more oil cars throughout the consist of that train, then that route is considered a high hazard train route. And those are also within a quarter mile or less from waters of the state. So it sounds like the, these rules you're describing, it, they're more about the oil spills from a train and they're not regulations of the trains themselves. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. We're not regulating the trains or their operations. Uh, the only thing that the rules would require is that they conduct these drills and exercises, which is going to test their contingency plans to make sure that they work. And so what our job is in high hazard rail contingency planning is to look at these routes and to see if a derailment happened along any of these high hazard rail corridors, how would the trains and how would we respond to that emergency? Um, And so the railroads that qualify under that definition are required to send contingency plans for us to review and, and make sure that they have plans for in case of that derailment. And we will also be designing and evaluating the drills for the rail companies that fall under that that definition. How similar or different is that from like the facility specific drill that um, Scott was talking about? It is a little different because with trains, you have to look at the entire route as opposed to having a facility in a set location and you can have your response, you know, pretty well thought out because you know where the oil is going to come from. The problem with trains is you're looking at oil that derails and spills into a waterway. And what makes it even more challenging is if you look at the Deschutes River, you might have some you know, rapid, fast-moving water that the oil is spilling into. And, and how are you going to be able to contain that and respond? So you're really looking at the entire route, which is why we'll be working with Don Pettit and Sarah Behrman on these geographic response plans. Obviously, you've been doing a bunch of work so far and it, and some new things are happening. So where is it in its development process? As of right now, both of the rail companies that qualify for the definition of high hazard rails have submitted their contingency plans to us, and we are currently reviewing those plans. Uh, there are several other state agencies and tribes that also get to review those plans, and we will all come together and, and make sure that these are good for approval. We expect to have those approved by the end of this coming January of 2022. And once those plans are approved, then they will start planning for their drills and exercises. 
One thing we wanted to, to point out is mm -hmm. the definition of, of oil is as defined by the rules does not allow Oregon to regulate bio or renewable oils, which we do have coming through our state. So while bio and renewable oils have been a huge win for air quality, our rules do not currently allow us to cover those in the high hazard rail program. And we believe there's a lot more research that needs to be done because we believe that there still may be a risk if these were to spill into our waterways. And so one thing that we're hoping we can do is help Oregon change its definition of oils to include the bio and renewable oils uh, so that we can actually have plans for those just like we do for the petroleum oil. So Scott and Brandon, they're both working on creating plans with facilities or with rail lines that say what DEQ and that facility or rail line will do in the event of a spill. It's important to get these plans in place now because once oil spills into the water, it can start moving quickly and we want to recover it and protect our natural and cultural resources as quickly as possible. Right. And you and I have both gone to these drills. And just for absolute clarity, during a spill drill, zero oil is spilled into the water. We just pretend it's been spilled. It's a total hypothetical thing. Sort of like playing Dungeons and Dragons, but with oil instead of dragons. We're all in a role called Public Information Officer, and we practice our part of the drill, which is creating a public platform, like a website and social media, to provide the public with the information about this spill. I'm really interested to see what these rail line spill drills are like. Like Brandon said, they have to account for the whole rail line, not just the facility location. For sure. And we're always bringing as many partners as we can into these drills from other local, state and federal agencies so we can practice responding together. And I think these rail line spill drills will just mean we get to practice working with even more people, which is only going to make us all better. So while Scott and Brandon are planning for oil spills from specific parties, Others are coordinating work across regions and within data systems. Brandon mentioned working with Don Pettit on geographic response plans and with Sarah Behrman on GIS information. And that's who you're going to hear from next. First, we'll hear from Don about what geographic response plans are and why they're so important. I'm Don Pettit. I'm an emergency response planner. I work on plans that are more geographic in nature. So as opposed to the facility plans that Scott works on, I work on plans that cover certain areas of the state that we want to make sure are protected in the event of a large oil spill. Primarily, our plans are around oil spills and how to recover after other natural disasters, floods, earthquakes, things like that. What is the benefit of doing looking at a geographic response compared to just a facility-specific response? Right. So the, the facilities are required to look at 
their properties and, and kind of the general area right around where they could release. So for instance, an outfall that's connected to their tank farm, that kind of thing. But our other plans, these geographic response plans cover areas such as the entirety of the uh, Columbia River from the mouth all the way to almost to Canada. <laughs> so we, these plans are developed with specific areas as opposed to specific sources or limiting right to the area of the source. We could have an oil spill anywhere along the Oregon coast. And one of our primary types of spills are tanker truck overturns that as well can happen just about anywhere in the state. We can't create plans for everywhere, at least not right away. So we generally focus on areas with the largest risks, such as shipping, railroad, shipments of oil, and kind of the high traffic corridors for transporting all kinds of fuel. These plans combine information on what's at risk with tools that we have to combat the spills. So that could be in the form of information. Like Scott mentioned, do we know where certain water intakes are? We have that information for the entire state. Where are all the fish hatcheries and where do they draw water from? Things like that. We've collected that information for the entire state. Are there any specific parts of the state that you are prioritizing? You know, Oregon was a leader in originating these kinds of plans in the 70s and 80s. We've had plans for the Oregon coast and the Columbia River for decades now, but a lot of those plans are getting quite old and a lot of those need to be updated. So we began a, a project about four years ago to update all of the Oregon coast and we're, I'd say about halfway through that process right now, maybe a little more. We conducted all the field work, which was great. We got to see every, virtually every beach and estuary in the state over the course of a summer to help look for places that we can, utilized to capture oil, things we need to protect, what's in harm's way. We met with tribes to go over what things are important to them and actually have them help us design strategies to protect those items without relaying too much information specifically about what it is we're trying to protect so that we can protect kind of the identity and security of some of those cultural resources. Yeah, and these spills, when they happen in these settings, can not only disrupt local economies, they can really present a challenge to clean up. So the quicker we can get in and effectively remove the oil or contain it or direct it away from things that are in harm's way, the better the overall response and, and the better outcome for the environment. This work that Don's been talking about isn't new in Oregon. Like so many things environmental, the state has been a leader, but the work is not done. It's really cool that DEQ is looking at ways to protect cultural resources as well as the environment. So many of these cultural resources are important because they are pieces of very special environments, and it's part of DEQ's job to protect them. Absolutely. And if you think about all of the beaches around the state, the different places where highways cross over rivers or streams or close to lakes, there are just so many areas where we need to be protecting these resources, natural and cultural. 
So Don's team must have so much data. This information will only do us good if we have a way to use it and implement it in real time and share it in real time. And that's where Sarah's work comes in. I'm Sarah Berman. I'm the GIS coordinator for emergency response. I'm uh, mostly focused on getting people the geographic information they need. So anything that belongs on a map is kind of my wheelhouse. And so when people need to know where the spill is in relation to a stream or a shellfish bed or water intake, those are the types of questions that I can help them answer. Take us through some of these maps. What type of information are you trying to pass on when you create a map? A lot of the data that ends up in the maps that we use for spill response comes from our geographic response plans. And this includes information on how to deploy oil containment boom to protect a particular shellfish bed, for example, or where all of our potential staging areas are, where we could put all of our equipment while it's waiting to be assigned to a team to go out. There's also a lot of reference data that helps us figure out, for example, where the nearest boat ramp is to the spill or how far away the equipment that we need is being currently stored and how quickly we could get it to the scene of the spill. So that kind of data is all preloaded into the map. And then there's the data that is collected during the spill. So that includes things like the current extent of the spill, the trajectory model output that tells us where the spill is likely to go and how fast it's likely to get there. So there's a lot we can do to be ready for a spill and a lot of data that we can have ready to go. And then the rest kind of has to happen in the moment. And so we add a lot of data to that map as the response goes. DEQ has a trailer, a mobile command post, that we move around the state to be close to the site of a spill. A couple of years ago, there was a tanker truck spill into the North Saniam River east of Salem, and I joined Sarah and the emergency response team in the trailer. That experience led me to this question during our conversation. I seem to recall trying to track you down in a trailer. It kind of looked like a food coat, but focused on spill response and not sushi burritos. Please tell us a bit about this trailer. What is it? What's its function? So our emergency response trailer is meant to be our mobile command post. So we have communications equipment in there. We have satellite communications so that we can get some Wi-Fi out to fairly remote locations. We have kind of a, a conference room that's in one end of the trailer. We have big whiteboards and clipboards that we can put maps up on the wall. And then we just have some workstations where people can sit and work on plans and get in out of the cold or the rain for a little while and kind of figure out what the next step is. And and we actually recently got a big tent that is kind of goes along with our trailer. And that in the time of COVID has been really great for planning how to conduct socially distant responses. And there's only so many people that you can fit in our trailer at a time. Some of the conversation we've been having today is how bills can happen anywhere around the state. So sometimes they're in pretty remote locations. I'm just curious if a spell occurs in a remote spot, how do you go about creating these maps from the field and getting that information together, given the challenges potentially of connectability, be it with internet or phone connections? How do you take on those challenges of doing this high tech work out there? places where there might not be that much technology. 
I think it's always kind of a combination of things because if there's one thing about emergency response, you don't want to have a single point of failure where if that one thing goes down, then everything goes down. So we can do a lot with maps that are designed to be taken offline. So we do have that capability. We can put base maps and a bunch of our reference data just downloaded onto a tablet or a laptop. We can take that out into the field and we can be accessing and even editing data offline. And then as soon as we get back to cell service, those updates will automatically be synced up with the data set. So that's a really great capability that we have. And then there's always paper backups. It's pretty hard to find a perfect substitute for a paper map and a pen. Everything Sarah's talking about is really exciting. And I think what we've seen during the COVID and the wildfire responses is just how important having some sort of platform for information is. I know I use the COVID dashboard all of the time, and I think this is something that the public is really coming to expect. And it's hard to prop those things up at a moment's notice. So getting all the pieces in place right now so that we can just fill in the information when an event occurs is going to be incredibly helpful, both for us as responders and for people people who are trying to understand the situation. Excellent. Thanks for sharing your experiences, Lauren. I know you all in on the response to the COVID pandemic and the wildfires of 2020. So you have a lot of great experience there. Something that I take away from talking with Sarah and just learning about what they do is that Sarah's work is a great help to us, the comms team, because it makes the details of a spill understandable, which in turn makes it that much easier for us to communicate that to the public. We often put the type of information she creates onto a blog. Uh, there's a couple examples of that in the past couple of years, just look in there for things like tangle spills and the Tug Nova extraction. Uh, but there's some great examples in recent years. We have a couple of key takeaways we want to share with all of you about this podcast and everything we've learned from the different people we spoke to. I'll start with the first one. And that's that being ready for an emergency takes a lot of preparation from all the DEQ staff. And hopefully, you know, it's 90% preparation and then it just has to be 10% response because you're that much more ready to respond. And DEQ's emergency response team has to be prepared for anything. I think they say expect the unexpected and the unexpected never happens. So all the work that goes into preparation is worth that much more in response. Another takeaway is the importance of the drills, and that kind of speaks to the preparation you're talking about, Lauren. We've both taken part in these drills. When we've done so, they're usually these worst-case scenario ones. So it's really interesting to learn from Scott that there's levels of drills that companies build up to the worst-case scenarios, and I think it's just a, a good method of doing that. You kind of tackle these smaller problems. Hey, how would we respond to just a, a relatively small incident and then building up to what could be, you don't want to think about it, but if the worst came to be, what would we do? How would we respond to it? Absolutely. And yeah, doing those small pieces are important because as we talked about, thankfully, most of DEQ's emergency response incidents are really small, but any incident could be a major incident. And I know DEQ staff, ourselves included, even when something starts out small, we approach it 
with the readiness of a major incident so that we can be prepared. But it's all the more useful to have all that drill experience and then, of course, all of the maps and data and other information just ready to go if we need them. All right. And Green State, a podcast, is a way to share stories of what DEQ does. Protecting the state's air, land, and water will likely be revisiting the topic of emergency response as we tell more stories. Perhaps we'll look at a specific response or introduce you, the listener, to more people around the state who are part of this important team. Until then, thanks for learning along with us about the emergency response program. In our next few episodes of Green State, we'll be talking about the Climate Protection Program and the Cleanup Program. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Green State, the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality's podcast. And thanks to all the voices who contributed to the conversation. Our music is by Jason Shaw at audionautics.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you get our upcoming episodes. You can listen pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. Feel free to rate and review. And if you have any questions or ideas for topics for us to cover, you can reach us at 503-451-0585 or by email at green.state.org.gov. To find out more, go to dequblog.com slash greenstate.